Well, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we're going to be in verses 31 through 35 today. We've been hearing a lot lately about how we are better together, and last week Pastor Kavakis wrapped up his uh, series on prayer with that series called Pray Without Ceasing, and he was in Romans chapter 15, and he showed us uh, how we are uh, indeed better together, uh, and not only that, but as followers of Christ, we speak with one voice, and that message that we have, that we speak with one voice, is the gospel. Our message is Jesus Christ. And then at the beginning of the month, we also saw how we are better together when you and I meditated together on Romans chapter 16, this amazing chapter of all of these greetings, and we see the names of the, of the people of the early church and how they were connected to one another, people from all walks of life and all stations in life, how they were connected by the blood of Jesus Christ. In, in Christ, they were unified and they worked together. And so we saw in Romans uh, chapter 16, in the, in the first part of this, this series called Brothers and Sisters, uh, we saw uh, how birds of a feather flock together, and that we, we uh, as Christians, are called to build intimate relationships based on our union in Christ. As, as Christians, we're also called to minister to one another based on our union in Christ. And also, uh, based on our union in Christ, as Christians, we proclaim the gospel together. And so as we, we think about how we are better together in, in anticipation of, of our going out into the community with our partner churches later uh, this week to present the gospel with one voice, Let's continue to meditate together on what it means that we are brothers and sisters. Last week, John showed us that our message is the gospel, a message that we proclaim with one voice. And so this week, let me ask a few follow-up questions. What's, what's the best way that we can proclaim that message together? What's the key element? of our testimony? What is it that demonstrates to the world around us the power of Christ to change us into new creatures? What is it about us that when people see it, this it that we're talking about, what is it that when people see it in us that they know that we belong to Jesus Christ? Is it who we voted for? Is it our opinion on gun control or any number of, of other issues? Is it that we homeschool our children? Or maybe it's something a little bit deeper and more spiritual than that. Maybe it's our views on baptism or, or on predestination or complementarianism. Maybe those are the things that, that set us apart. Well, let me ask the question in a different way. What is it that puts Christ and his gospel at the forefront of all that we are and all that we do? What is it that puts him first rather than our church brand or our programs or even our opinions? What is it that makes us, his church, a true reflection of who Christ is? And I think the best way to sum up all of these questions is to ask this. 
What is the distinguishing mark of the church? Now, I've got to confess something to you. I, I confess that I'm, I'm assuming that we all want to know the answers to these questions. I'm assuming that we all understand that we, the church, exist to be the light in the darkness. Now, there's a phrase that we see at the very beginning of God's, John's gospel, that, we, that Christ is the light in the darkness, and as followers of Christ, we are his light as well. I trust that we all understand that there are three purposes of the church. The first purpose is upward. It's to worship God. The second purpose is, is horizontally. It's to minister to one another. And then the third purpose is to fulfill the Great Commission, and that is to make new disciples. And that is that we go out into the world. And so we look up at God. We look inward at each other and we minister to one another and we also look outward and we go outward to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are here to be the light in the darkness. And so what is the primary thing that we need to be, uh, to, to be able to do to be the church? What do we need if we're to proclaim the gospel together? If we could ask Jesus, what, what is this key thing? What would his answer be? Well, praise be to God. He gives us the answer in our passage today. He says that people will know that we belong to him because of our love for each other. Because of our love for one another. And so today we're going to look at Jesus' command for us to love each other, and we're going to see what he means by that command. And on first reading of, of this passage in John chapter 13, these verses 31 through 35, this can kind of seem like a list of three unrelated things, because we see uh, Jesus talking about glory, then he talks about going away somewhere, and then he tells us to love one another. This seems kind of like our grocery list. We go to the grocery store, and we look on the list, and we see we need cucumbers and some Drano, and maybe... Uh, one of those screwdriver kits, you know, where you can put the different bits on there and maybe a box of cereal. But I got to tell you that these words of Christ are closely intertwined. They're nothing like that grocery list. In verses 31 through 33, we see the glorified Son and the glorified Father. And in that glory, we see a demonstration of perfect unity, of perfect love. And then in verses 34 and 35, we see the fruit of that glory. That is the result of God's glory in us is that we love each other as Christ has loved us. And this becomes our key testimony to the world of the glory of our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the lesson is this. God wants us to understand that he's planted a divine seed in us through Christ, the fruit of which is that we love each other just as the Lord has loved us. This is a self-sacrificial love for our brothers and sisters. And so let me read uh, these verses for us, and then we'll dig in and see all that they have to say. Beginning in verse 31 of John chapter 13. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, 
Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The word of the Lord. Well, as we, as we start to dig into this, let's look a little bit at the context about what comes before this passage and what comes after this passage. Jesus is, is nearing the end of his ministry. He is, has begun to say farewell to his disciples. He's preparing them uh, for his death and his resurrection. Uh, Jesus has proven himself uh, to uh, be a loving servant of his disciples. He washed his a disciple's feet earlier in chapter 13. They've just had what we now know as the Last Supper, and Judas has also begun to set in motion his betrayal of Jesus. In verse 27 of chapter 13, it says, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. And then right after our passage, immediately following our passage, is Jesus foretelling of Peter's denial. And he says famously in verse 38 to Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And so we, we find out that our passage is sandwiched in between betrayal and denial. And so in between betrayal and denial, what we find is perfect love, perfect union. And we see this in the glorified Son and the glorified Father in verses 31 through 33. Let me read those verses again for us. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been speaking of, of his hour, this moment when he would be glorified. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we find at least 16 references to this hour, and plus a whole lot of other references to what Christ is ultimately going to do. And so Jesus, in verses 31 through 33, is more explicitly preparing the disciples for this hour. And this hour has to do, uh, as we read, with Jesus being glorified and the Father being glorified by Jesus. In fact, uh, this concept of glory or glorify or glorification appears 41 times in the Gospel of John. And so, obviously, it's a very important concept for us to understand. But what does glory mean anyway? Well, in the Old Testament, the word for glory means weight. The Hebrew word for glory means weight, as in the idea of importance or significance. Over time, it came to mean God's beauty and power. You can think of the Hebrews looking up at the looking up at Mount Sinai and all the smoke and the fire and the thunder and all of those things. They're witnessing the manifestation of the glory of God. Moses, when he went up on that mountain to be in God's presence, 
uh, could not look upon the glory of God because it would kill him. That's how, that's how glorious the glory of God is. Now, in the New Testament, it's got a, a related and very similar meaning. It, it means, uh, from our part, looking at God to recognize and honor and praise him, you know, to invest him with dignity, to set him up on the proper pedestal uh, that he deserves to be on. And so uh, what we're doing when we give God glory, we're recognizing uh, God for who and what he is, our, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we praise him uh, and we celebrate him and we worship him and we adore him, not just here on Sunday morning, but every single day of our lives, at least I hope so. Now this is us giving glory to God, recognizing him for who he is. But it's awfully important for us to understand that God has glory all on his own. When we give him glory, we're not adding to his glory. He doesn't need more of it. He's got all he needs. What he wants from us is to give him that recognition. That's what it means for us to glorify him. And in fact, those who reject God are also, they're not taking any glory away from him as if God is somehow deficient in glory. God's not thinking, oh my goodness, if only that person would give me their glory, then I would have enough. This is part of the, the really, the, the meaning of 1 Chronicles 29, 11. I love this passage. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And that's the glory of God. And that's our approach to giving him glory. We're acknowledging his glory. And so God's glory is something that he already has, or better yet, something that he already is. His very nature is glorious. And so when we give glory to God, we're simply acknowledging who he is. We're acknowledging what he is. We're saying that you are God and you are my Savior. And so Jesus says then in verse 31, and I'm paraphrasing here, beginning in verse 31, right now the Son of Man is being glorified. The Son of Man glorifies God, that is the Father. Since the Son of Man glorifies God, the Father, God will also glorify the Son. In verse 32, in other words, he'll show people how wonderful the Son of Man is, and we're going to see that's exactly what he does. God will glorify the Son of Man right now. This is imminent. It's about to happen. But what does all that mean? I mean, I mean, didn't, didn't we just talk about how God has all the glory that he needs? He doesn't need any more. And now we see the Father and the Son trading glory back and forth. What is all this about? Well, all this means that the plan of redemption that that the Father had set into place before he created the universe, before he created the world, before he created animals, and before he created Adam and Eve, in fact, before time even was. All of this means that that plan is about to be put into action through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1. Beginning in verse 3, he says, Blessed be God, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so before everything existed, before the foundation of the world, God knew that we would be sinners and he knew that we would need a savior and so he gave us the beloved so that we could stand holy and blameless before our God. This is the plan that has been set into place since before creation. Now the beloved, of course, is the Son of Man, who's about to be glorified, as Jesus says in his own words. In other words, the glory that God the Father and the Son already possess is about to be made manifest, and it's about to be revealed to everybody, to the whole world, not just to Moses and the Hebrews anymore, but to the whole universe, and even to the angels in heaven, those angels that, that Peter says uh, long to understand salvation. The glory of God the Father and the Son will be revealed in what's about to occur. God the Father is going to sacrifice his own son for the payment of our sins. And he'll prove his love for those whom he has chosen. He's going to restore our broken relationship with him. And the son is about to willingly go to that cross. He's not being forced to go there. He goes there willingly in perfect union with his father. We know this from our Lord's prayer in the garden in Luke chapter 22, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. You see, Jesus knows that what's about to happen is going to be something that is more traumatic than anything we can ever imagine. He knows that what's about to happen is that he's going to be whipped and he's going to be scourged and he's going to be spat upon and, and God's chosen people are going to reject him. They're going to reject the Messiah that the Father has sent them. But that's not even the half of it. Because Jesus understands that when he hangs on that cross in our place, he's going to suffer the unmitigated, full wrath of God. But then Jesus prays, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is the glory of God the Father and the Son, that the Father and the Son in perfect union would display perfect love for us. And this is how it plays out in Scripture, Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. John 15.3. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what he's about to do. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's perfect union. That's perfect love. And I don't know about you, but this is what I call perfect glory. And so then in verse 33, Jesus addresses the disciples as, as children. You see, I don't think this is any kind of coincidence here. He calls them little children. Jesus has just been talking about his relationship with the Father. And so now in calling them little children, Jesus wants them to understand that they have a, a real connection with the glory of God the Father and the glory of the Son. And so he tells them that uh, what's going to happen is that he's going to be with them only a little while longer. He tells them that when he's not with them, they're going to seek after him, but they cannot come to where he's going. You see, where he is going, of course, is to be at the right hand of God the Father. He's going to ascend bodily into heaven to intercede for us. And then in chapter 14, Jesus tells the disciples that even though he's going, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to be their help and their, and their guide. And the Holy Spirit is going to bring glory to the Son. And you see, this is what's different about what he told the Jews, that they cannot go where he's going. Because unlike those believing Jews, Jesus tells his disciples that eventually he's coming back for them. He's coming back for the chosen people. He's coming back for those who love him. But until then, Jesus has a command for us, a command that's rooted in the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so because of our triune God's glory, the power uh, of our God uh, is to make us new creatures, in the words of Paul, and we become fundamentally changed. And this is the fruit of glory in verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so Jesus says that he has a, a new and improved commandment for them. This isn't an entirely new commandment. We know this just from reading our Bibles and reading the law in Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That sounds very familiar to us. And so the newness of Christ's commandment to love one another is that that here's the law of the new covenant, the new order. This has been brought about by the redemption of God in and through Christ, brought about by the glory of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. In this new order, in the new covenant, is that his disciples are to love one another, but they're to love one another in a very particular way, in a very special way. They're to love one another in the same way that Jesus has loved them. And so this is sacrificial love to the highest degree. And so let's just review one more time. Let's understand why this is sacrificial love to the highest degree. Christ, the Lord of all creation, humbled himself willingly to become a man. And he lived in the midst of our muck and our sin and our filth. And yet he lived perfectly without sin. And not only that, he took the blame for our sin, and he died in our place. Now, of course, 
Jesus isn't saying that we can die in someone else's place to wipe out their sins, to wipe them clean, to wash them clean. No. But Christ is commanding us to sacrifice ourselves for each other and for him. Because you remember a common theme in what Jesus tells his disciples and us is that we need to share in the sufferings of Christ. We need to be willing to share in the sufferings of Christ. And so when we go down to the park on Friday and Saturday, we may share in the sufferings of Christ. People might look on us with disdain. <laughs> People might not like what we're doing. But he is commanding us as well to sacrifice ourselves for each other. We saw that in Romans 16, didn't we? How some risk their lives for the sake of their brothers and sisters. But this sacrificing of ourselves for each other doesn't begin with that extreme. It begins with the investment of something that is very, very precious to us. Something that we guard very carefully. And that is time. You see, we need to, to make the investment of time in each other, of these people in this room. We need to take an interest in each other's lives, just like we saw in Romans chapter 16. These are people from all walks of life, men and women. Some were rich and some were poor. Some were of high uh, position and high stature in Roman society and others were slaves. And yet they viewed each, each and every person as an equal. And why were they equal? Because they have one thing in common, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we want to take an interest in one another. And, we, and that takes time. It takes, hey, would you meet with me on Wednesday for a cup of coffee? It takes uh, effort. It takes uh, it takes time. And this means that, that we learn to love each other enough to, to get to know each other, really get to know each other. We, and we're not talking about everybody in this room doesn't have to know everybody like this. But within this body, there should be people of whom you are getting to know in a way that is deep and that is centered around Jesus Christ. You need to be building relationships uh, where you can hold each other accountable where you can look each other in the eye and confess your sins. And then you're greeted with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to get to where we can cry together and laugh together and struggle together and enjoy the mountaintops together. As followers of Jesus Christ, this kind of love should just be inevitable. If we're saved, we know the sacrifice that was made for us. And as we share in the sufferings of Christ, we should, we, should, uh, we should be willing to do the same for our brothers and sisters. You know, Pat read earlier from John chapter 12. And this is Jesus, uh, er, just a little bit uh, earlier than, uh, than where we are in chapter 13. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Here we are again with that hour and Jesus being glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
You see, what Jesus is saying here is that as surely as a seed that is not planted, let's say it's put in a jar somewhere, it's not going to accomplish anything. But a, a seed that is planted that will first die and then bear fruit. It's, it's going to happen. In other words, if it's buried in the ground, it's going to rise up again full of life. It isn't this a picture of what Jesus has done for us? And so what Jesus is also saying is that he's going to accept his coming glorification, even though he knows it's going to be so traumatic. The full wrath of God will be upon him. And so what Jesus is getting at here is that the result of his glorification is, the, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been planted in you and me, and that automatically gives birth to life, right? Christ is the seed that died, and his gospel grows in us, and it will surely save us. I love the way the late Dr. R.C. Sproul puts it. He said, Jesus did not say that if a grain of, sand, a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it might produce some fruit. Instead, he said that it would produce much fruit. He goes on to say, it is not possible, not even theoretically possible, that the atonement of Jesus could not bear fruit. The Father makes certain that the grain of wheat that dies bears fruit. And so if you and I have been saved, we need to be bearing fruit. And so with that thought, let's jump back to verses 34 and 35 of our passage. Jesus gives us a new command to love one another as he has loved us. Isn't what Jesus is saying is that this is the fruit of the gospel? That the fruit of his glorification in his death and his resurrection is that we love each other as he has loved us? Isn't that the result of our salvation? John elaborates on this in one of his letters in 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It's an inevitable thing that should happen. We just need a willing heart. And we need to be able to see the people around us this morning in the pews as our brothers and sisters. And the one thing that we have in common is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, love doesn't mean that we're never going to disagree or even have conflict. Of course we will. This is part of, this is just part of being a broken human being. But by the Holy Spirit's power, the love of Christ lifts us above our differences. And that's when we're able to work through our differences. And so this helps us to read 1 Corinthians 13, 7 in a new light. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So the next time you have a cup of coffee with a brother or sister, look them in the eye. And tell them, I want to endure all things with you. And then prove that that's true by your actions. What a beautiful thing 
to display the same kind of love that our Lord has had with us, because isn't that the case? He loved us when we were his enemies, which is another way of saying he loved us when we hated his guts. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then Paul again in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Now there's a challenge. There's a very difficult thing to do. But you know, as a pastor, I get to have the best seat in the house because I've gotten to watch some of you go through that process of forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. And there's nothing more beautiful than that than to love one another in that way because it imitates the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, it's when we love each other like that that all people will know that we belong to Christ. You see, our sacrificial Christ-like love for each other is our witness to the world. Our love for one another is the way that God has chosen for us to demonstrate his glory to the world. Oh, but what a terrible testimony that the church universal has had at times throughout its history. We have divided over non-essentials of the faith. We've been hateful and angry about our differences. And if we get caught up in that, we forget that salvation is not through our opinions, but through faith alone and Christ alone, through grace alone. And we also forget that the people we're hating and being angry at are our brothers and sisters, that we're turning up our noses at, at precious souls whom Christ bled and died to save. These are people who are going to live forever with in eternity, in the presence of Christ. And so, Church history has not always been very stellar when it comes to loving one another, has it? But you know, this Friday and Saturday, we're going to help to write a new page in the history of the church. We're going to stand proudly together with our brothers and sisters from three other churches. Because you see, this love for one another uh, extends to any true believer, not just the ones in this room. And so we're going to stand with Mount Zion Baptist Church and with Heritage Presbyterian Church and with Trinity Lutheran Church. We're going to stand with the believers of those churches. We're going to stand together and love them as our Lord commands us to do. And so we're going to stand with our brothers and sisters and we're going to proclaim the same gospel. You know, we each have our different distinctives. The EFCA is different from the Baptist Church, and the Baptist Church is different from the Lutherans, and the Lutherans are different from Presbyterians. Of course we are. We have some different interpretations of baptism and communion and, and how, to, how to do church. 
but we're going to proclaim the same gospel because we all agree on who Christ is. We all agree that our God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we believe that our God is the one who had his plan of redemption set into place before the foundation of the world. And that plan had everything to do with our Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit to be our helper and to be our guide. And so we're going to stand together and proclaim the same gospel. We're going to proclaim Christ, the Word who came in the flesh to dwell among us. We're going to proclaim Christ who came and lived a perfect life. We're going to proclaim Christ who willingly was crucified and died for the forgiveness of our sins. And we're going to proclaim Christ who is the living God who rose from the dead and gives us the hope of eternal life. And so we're going to stand together and set up tents and we're going to hand out cookies and we're going to smile at people together with the joy of the Lord. And we're going to maybe even pray with people. And we're going to love our brothers and sisters at Heritage, in Mount Zion, in Trinity, and in Warrington Bible Fellowship. And we're going to do that to display the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to do it to display the glory of our Father in heaven. And we're going to do it with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit who is in us. You know, last year, uh, it stories in the park at Christmas time. This is our second year of doing the Christmas version. We've done the summer version uh, twice. But last year we had several people looking around, you know, you know, from the community and wondering, well, who's who's putting this on anyway? Because they didn't see any church logo anywhere. They didn't see, you know, any kind of booth about our church or anything like that. And so they, well, who's who's doing this anyway? And when we told them, well, it's, it's four churches who've gotten together uh, and, to, you know, to present the, the story of Christmas. And they were just blown away. They were blown away at the fact that four churches of different denominations could work in harmony with one another. You see, our love for one another is a testimony. It is indeed. And one woman said, you know, Warrington needs more of this. And she's exactly right. She's exactly right. Because, you know, according to Christ, our love for one another, loving each other as he has loved us, is the distinguishing mark of his church. And so the church is made up of every true believer in the world. And so let's stand together because truly we are better together.